now comes word that there's extraordinary pushes to try to get kids vaccinated as young as five years old. Dr. Martin McCary has joined us before John Hopkins School of Public Health. The newest COVID edition of his book is available for pre-order. It's a paperback edition of The Price We Pay. Hits bookstores in, uh, well, actually, it's there now. And it won the Business Book of the Year Award. And Dr. McCary is on the line with us right now. How are you, doctor? Great. Good to be with you, Mitch. Thanks for having me. Tell us about uh, the, the, see, you just recently wrote a piece about the CDC's push to vaccinate kids. And you said it's based on a, a, a pretty small premise. Share that with us, if you would. Yeah, so we've imposed a tremendous amount of restrictions on kids, 50 million kids over the last year and a half, based on one number, and that is total number of COVID deaths in kids. That number now is up to 335 over a year and a half. Now, I'm not downplaying that, but the CDC has never called those families or doctors to figure out if in those cases COVID was the cause of the death or it was incidental to the death. And they've never broken down those deaths by kids who are healthy versus kids with a pre-existing comorbid condition. So if you're going to make recommendations for all healthy kids, which is most kids in America are healthy, you should really know whether or not there's any risk to their life. Uh, I mean, this is basic science and public health. But what we've seen is sort of a glossing over that. And by the way, they haven't looked into it for lack of resources. The CDC has 21,000 employees. Hmm. And I guarantee you they're going to come begging for more money for Congress next year for more. So we should have the right data if we're going to make decisions about public policy, masking, closures, vaccines, you name it. Right. Now, when you say 335 total deaths in a year and a half and you say kids, do we mean anybody under 18? Is that considered a kid? Yes. Okay, so that to me is Yeah, so the subgroup under age 12 is a much smaller percent. And kids under five, you know, we're talking about like doing things to two and three-year-olds, masking them, making them, you know, distance and uh, canceling some, you know, sport, you know, gatherings outside. We should have the number. Have any kids that age died or had the inflammatory syndrome at those age? We need that information. Well, can I mean, can't somebody call for that? You know, I got the idea to write this article in the Wall Street Journal, and I can't believe how many people have read it. I'm glad um, because I thought about doing this myself. I thought about trying to um, get a little it's research. Not, it's only 335 people. It's not that many people to call. Yeah, I need maybe two people for a couple of weeks on my staff and we could do it. CDC's mm-hmm. got 21,000 people. So uh, it's it's amazing. We've done all this stuff to 50 million kids, and we've never bothered to call. By the way, this isn't the only way we've dropped the ball with the COVID vaccine complications. They've they've have not really comprehensively called all of those reports to investigate them. We should have that information as well because I've come down on child vaccines this way. If the kid is totally healthy. A one dose is probably sufficient. And at Tel Aviv University found one dose was 100% protective against COVID. For kids? For kids. So when it comes to children, what are, in general, the risks with vaccines that perhaps aren't similar risks with adults? 
So first of all, if the kid has a comorbid condition, like even obesity, they should definitely get the vaccine, in my opinion. That's pretty clear to me. But if the kid is totally healthy, the risk is that healthy kids, young people in general, they develop a stronger inflammatory response to the vaccine. And the dose is probably, in my opinion, too high for a a little thin 12-year-old girl. Why are they getting the same two-dose dose schedule as a heavy 50-year-old man? Um, so what's happening is the body's reacting with a stronger immune response, stronger inflammatory response, which we know happens the younger you go, the stronger the response. And it's overwhelming the heart in some kids. About 50 per million will get hospitalized with some kind of heart inflammation. Hmm. Now, are, there the other, are there other things with a vaccine that if you take it when you're very young could inhibit your development of something that that comes as you get older or the, or your growth of something that comes to get older again along the lines of my previous question that this is something a child would have to worry about that a fully formed adult would not because i think that's the perception of most parents when they think i, I don't want to give my kid a vaccine i mean my kid's still growing you know there might be something that it gets that, that, that then you know is going to pr- pr- prevent them from developing this that or the other thing is that a legitimate worry I think the complications that we're seeing, Mitch, are really related to the dose. The dose is probably not right. You know, when they come up with these doses, they, it's not as calculated and sophisticated as people might think. Just look back at the anthrax vaccine they gave U.S. soldiers. They gave them five boosters. That was a total disaster, by the way. Mm. Um, so what happened is they basically said, hey, we're in a pandemic. Let's put these doses close together at three or four weeks apart. And guess what? You're getting a strong inflammatory response, but in kids, maybe that's too much. So that's why Tel Aviv University did the study on one dose, and you probably get a pretty decent response from one so, dose. So it's more about and, uh, and how much you take of answer, it than necessarily what's in it. That's right. And to answer your question, I don't think we're going to see these sort of developmental and long-term complications because – pop up later because in general with any vaccine in medicine you see the complications right away you see them in the first few weeks if you don't have a complication in the first few weeks you're good to go that's a general principle with vaccines mm-hmm. where, uh, where do you feel we we are legitimately you 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 have been a uh, a pioneer in 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 sort of assessing america's response to this and called for the fact that we might be hitting herd immunity as early as may if you count covid cases we are now, I think, somewhere in, uh, is it about 60% uh, uh, of fully do- f- fully vaccinated people over over 18, I believe it is, um, and 68, 69% of people who have had at least one uh, vaccination. But again, that doesn't take into account people who have had COVID. What's your scorecard reading as of this moment? Yeah, so here's the deal. Herd immunity, as you know, is not binary. It's not elimination. It just means it it's really slows down the spread. And we hit herd immunity for healthcare workers back in March. We hit herd immunity for seniors um, in May. Uh, most of the country was there uh, by late spring. And we started to have a normal summer. And then what happened, and nobody saw this coming, was India had a massive outbreak. We sort of let them hang to dry in the United States. We didn't help them with our vaccine surplus. We were throwing millions of doses in the trash. And out of that outbreak emerged a very contagious strain 
that right now is ripping through the non-immune communities in the United States. And there are pockets, mostly in the Southeast, where you're seeing it really rip through the unvaccinated. Now, when it rips through young, healthy people, it's hard for the virus to hurt someone young and healthy. We've always known that. But when it rips through somebody who's 50 years old or has diabetes and they're 45 or they're older and didn't get vaccinated and don't have natural immunity, it can be devastating. And that's what we're seeing right now is a bump in hospitalizations and a high number of cases. This wave will continue with the Delta strain into late August, maybe early September, and then we should be, be beyond it. Then we're going to be living with COVID forever as a mild common cold type seasonal virus, like the other coronaviruses, like the common cold. And we have to be prepared for that. We cannot have policies designed to eradicate a virus when it's been downgraded from immunity down to a very mild infection. So you don't feel that there's another variant that could result of this and could somehow wreak even more havoc? Or is is it just running out of bodies to inhabit? (laughs) Well, I think we always have to have humility with this virus. But right now, I don't see it coming. I I think we're going to be good to go. And once we get past this last phase, it'll be relegated to one of the many viruses that circulates season to season at a very mild level. So would you be in favor of these uh, suggestions that are popping up and becoming rules all over the country that kids going back to school in September, if you're saying we're kind of going to pass this by then, need to wear a mask as young as two years old all day long? I'd love to see the data to support that. It doesn't exist. And look, that doesn't mean it has no value in kids that age. But first of all, if the CDC did their job and we had the data that no young child has ever died of COVID, which may be the case, it may be that no kid under age seven or eight has ever died of COVID. I'd love to see that data. Um, It's tough. You know, some kids do really well with masks and other kids really struggle. I mean, bad dermatitis or rosacea, worsening acne. Some kids can't see when the mask is on because they wear glasses and it fogs it up. We see that in medical students in the operating room. They don't have a good seal on the top part of the mask. It fogs up and they can't see. So some kids really struggle. And remember, masks probably are number four or five in sort of the best mitigation things we can do for people, Um, distancing and potting and other things. Are, including ventilation, number one, are the most important things. So I don't, I don't see the data for masks in young kids. If people want to wear a mask, by all means, you should. But I don't see the data to support mm. mandates. Last question, and this is, this is kind of a left-field one, but I found myself wondering this. When I looked at the, uh, you know, everyone is so alarmed at the numbers are up in, uh, in the su- southern part of the country, and I looked at the deaths. And the deaths, uh, the average deaths were in the high 200s, you know, on a daily basis or something like that. And just for for comparison, I looked up how many people die from cancer every day. And the number was 1,600-something every day in America on, on average. Which leads me to the question, if we, through the resources and the money and the challenges and the tax breaks and the you know under and, and the funding at cancer the way we did and have done and continue to do at covid would we make a quantum leap in our ability to to tame that animal which takes 1600 people a day every day 
and continues to kills annually as many people who have died from COVID total since uh, since it hit us a year and a half ago. Would we be able to make that kind of progress? Well, you're onto something big there, Mitch, and I could agree with you more. We have now a distorted perception of risk. Risk is all around us in many forms, and in healthcare, you know, we've been sounding the alarm on lots of other things that we need to address, and we don't see any action on it. And as a country, we've become entirely fixated on this one virus. Now, we've got a tool that works almost perfectly to reduce the death and disability from COVID. Go get your vaccine, and then, you know what, let's focus on the 85,000 people a year who die from alcohol. Let's talk about the thousands of kids who die in pool drownings. Let's talk about other viruses that kill more kids than COVID kills uh, over the pandemic. So this is the conversation that no one's willing to have. And as long as we have this notion that we have to achieve absolute risk elimination and eradicate the virus from planet Earth, we're going to be in this mode and having these arguments forever. Our battle has never been against the sniffles and common cold mild symptoms, which is what you might get if you get a breakthrough infection. It is against death and disability and overrun hospitals. And from that, we have the perfect tool now. And we're going to be getting more now when the oral therapies come out in the fall. Yeah, I just wondered if cancer was the kind of thing that it's just, even if you put the trillions of dollars towards it and and challenged, uh, you know, uh, uh, public industry and and private industry and to get involved and 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 you know held out the the the, the promise of uh, massive money if you made the progress and issued a challenge like warp speed, is it defeatable that way? Is it, or could you at least make a dent in it that way? Or is there something about cancer that that just it doesn't matter what you throw at it? It's just going to take time. Well, cancer is a tough one, but I'll tell you this. The mRNA technology has been around since the 90s. We should have had an mRNA vaccine for HIV right now and Mm. some forms of cancer like melanoma. The technology was there, but as long as we've got the old guard medical establishment funding research the way they do it, there's not been a lot of fresh new ideas that have been promoted. And the NIH is so broken that, and I'll be talking about this tonight on Fox at around 7 Eastern, the NIH spends $41 billion a year. 0.04% went to COVID, public health research. They did not pivot any of their money to study the basic question of COVID transmission until October. They funded one study, and that study is not even done yet. So we've got to do a better job with our health agencies. We mentioned the CDC having 21,000 employees, and they put out pathetic data. We need a total overhaul of our health agencies. Hmm. Dr. Martin McCarry there, John Hopkins School of Public Health. His latest book, The Price We Pay, has now got the new COVID edition out there. Thank you, Dr. McCarry. It's always fascinating to talk to you. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Mitch. Good talking with you.